0: Hi there, this is Dennis Velko with Alt Bureau. Thank you so much for joining us for yet another episode with LGBT professionals, entrepreneurs, and community leaders from around the world. Today, our guest happens to fit several of those categories. He is both a community leader, an entrepreneur and a professional. I guess you hit all, you tick all the marks. And his name is uh, Ray Baron Wolford, and he is hailing from London, England. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ray.
1: Thank you. And it's, I'm uh, really honored and delighted to be part of your network this evening. So, Ray, uh, you have
0: such a, a, a wide and deep background. And um, so uh, I know we're going to be doing two episodes, folks, so if you Make sure that you uh, subscribe down below so that you're informed of our next episodes. Uh, I actually have about about 10 um, interviews right now that I'm I'm working on uh, in a systematic approach to getting them released, Uh, but make sure that you are um, uh, subscribed right down below and click that bell to be notified when new episodes come up so that you can also be notified when our next a conversation with uh, Ray comes up, which is going to be a very interesting topic. I think you guys are all going to enjoy it. But for now, Ray, I'd love for you to give us a little bit of uh, introduction of yourself and give us some of the background as to some of the, the projects, because you have been very deeply ingrained within the, the LGBT uh, rights and movements.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I really sort of started life, you know, sort of in the 70s and 80s, sort of making my name in London through nightclubs. I was a gay, uh, homeless young man, confused about my sexuality. I didn't really relate to the stereotypical gay people you saw in the media. And then, of course, you know, as a teenager, we were hit by AIDS, which was extremely scary because so many people around us were just dying and getting sick. And I got really involved in the activist movement through realising that so many of my gay friends were being thrown onto the street. And I got into the housing movement by actually housing gay people who, uh, through no fault with their own, became AIDS victims. Uh, quite often they were thrown out not just by the family, but sometimes by their own lover and that got me really into housing and housing gay people and the the political movement of of, of equality and equal rights and from that I established the first property business estate agency in the UK which specialised in in housing gay people because it didn't exist and that led me to probably 30 years of working in the housing sector I became one of the first uh, openly gay councillors to run for political office in the UK I was elected to political office in in Brixton in Southeast London. I was shot by the far right. I'm one of the few British uh, politicians to have been uh, attempted to be killed because of my uh, sexuality and my my profile. Um, and uh, I, I lost a partner, so that really sort of made the whole story very human to me and a lot of friends through AIDS. And then I got into nightclubs. I sort of got involved with the roller disco craze, uh, running nightclubs to find ways of, of, of getting through life. And uh, 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 all sorts of sort of extraordinary things sort of happened to me. And I found that the gay scene was very awesome back in the 70s and 80s. It was very... Everybody was involved, you know, you go to a bar and there'd be trans people, there'd be drag queens, there'd be bikers and mustachios and clones. And it was really very inclusive. And I think one of the, the tragedies of, of the gay scene today is it's not as inclusive as it was. We've become so many about letters and so many different groups that we've forgotten about our solidarity to a certain extent. And so well, my, my, my politics and my sexuality now has become more broad. It's become about civil rights, It's become about social justice, It's become about campaigning against poverty, and uh, opportunities for everybody because a lot of the disenfranchisement that gay people have, are the same things that are faced by people in the Black Lives Matter movement, for example. And so I I see myself as a gay man and I I experienced homophobia and I've experienced struggle with with my mental health and my sexuality, but that's also defined who I am and given me the power to make a difference. And that is what I do through my writing.
0: Okay, you have just given us, as I said, folks, he has done a lot, right? So you have just said in a very, in a concise manner, uh, a whole lot of stuff uh, that I'd like to back up and kind of unpack a little bit for folks so that they kind of understand what you uh, experienced and, and what you did and accomplished because I, uh, although that was a very comprehensive statement, I don't think it got to the depth of, of what I'd like folks to understand. So, um, uh, so what, kind of starting off is, uh, one of your, your last statements is kind of the, some of the differences in, you know, the seventies, eighties compared to now. Um, and I think, for me having kind of come out in germany actually um in 86 and 87 because i graduated from american high school in 1986 joined the army um took a position specifically a a job that i knew i would be stationed in europe um to get the heck out of the us and away from my right-wing evangelical um family and especially my my father and so forth that i um you know, I had that experience of coming out in the the mid to late '80s, but in in Europe, in Germany, and kind of, you know, there there is was just so different world, as you as you put it. It, you know, one we didn't have, you know, the the phones and the the, the scruffs and the grinders and the everything else. Um, so one of the things that I I personally. Uh, find that that's that's different is i'm a very social person i love to go out i love to meet people for coffee and sit for hours and chat over a coffee or go you know and meet for you know a couple of drinks and sit and chat and people watch i'm yeah. a people watcher yeah, me too. Uh, you know and it just seems like so much of our community, um, you know, and back in the day, one of the ways in which we had as a, as a community in which to feel that sense of connection, get that sense of connection, and also communicate was the bars, you know, going out because that's where you would learn about the local news. That's where you would get, you know, your information. And that's where if you were on the you know if you were not completely out which you know for most people back then that wasn't really quite an option as it is today um it was where you could be yourself as well and kind of unpack and let go so
1: but but one of the strangest things about that which it, which i found as sort of a young young boy is like being gay and there was nothing around me to to to, to tell me what was wrong with me i was a gay boy that liked gay like men but there was nothing that I could relate to and I I remember that my 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 parents had like these these catalogs, I don't know if you have them in America, where you could buy clothes from a catalog, you know, a bit like you have Amazon, you can screen on on your, your internet these days, but back in the day, you'd have a catalog. And I'd go to the men's underwear section because that's where I'd see men wearing, you know, like, you know, nice nice pants and, and scanty t-shirts. And that was the closest I could get to, you know, my 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 playgirl type of fantasies as, as a gay man.
0: You know, um, Ray, I, let, let me just confirm that i did the same thing mine mine was the sears catalog (laughs) and and it was you know looking at the men in the the underwear and um you know this was also back in the day when the tv was actually a piece of furniture right it was it was it was you know this was uh, you know mid 80s early 80s um and there was a I can't believe I'm telling you this, uh, telling everyone this. Is I believe it was Mrs. Doubtfire, the movie. Uh, they had a a, a scene um, where they went to a male review club. So as a female, I believe it was Mrs. Doubtfire. I'll have to now look it up. But then there was this this uh, scene where this you know male was you know dancing. You know, stripping only, of course, got down to his very tiny Speedos. Well, we'll just say when the family would go to sleep, sometimes I would be up at one o'clock in the morning watching that. And I had it and I had it queued up to 10 minutes before. And so that I could fast forward, do my business, (laughs) put it all away and hope that the family, no one, my dad or his wife or my sisters or something, didn't get up to get a glass of water.
1: <laughs> it was, <laughs> but, but a lot of people forget as well that remember that gay bar, bars didn't have the advertising and the persona. If you were just coming out as I was, the way you discovered gay bars were quite often through the Sunday newspapers, who would write some exposé of seedy gay men in the woods or wandering the streets. And I remember when I first came to London and I I went to the Coal Home, which is one of the most famous, you know, gay bars in London. It it sadly doesn't exist anymore, but it was like hugely important to gay culture around the world for for what it does. But it was like a gay leather bar. And I remember I'd come every weekend from my house in the suburbs to London and I'd stand at the bus stop across the road because I was too shy and too... Scared to go in a bar because there was all these gay guys in leather and big moustaches and chains and hankers and all the gear, and <laughs> it took me about six months before I had the bravery and The only reason I had the bravery was because one particular day I heard two gay guys in leather talking about fashion, and I thought. They were clearly not hard because the leather had all these fearsome connotations with it you know dominance and, and, and violence to a certain extent through the Easy Rider type of movies and that was the moment that I actually went in but if it wasn't for all these exposés about how gay people would be you know going to these dark clubs or going to these woodlands or trolling these streets I would never have gone so in a bizarre way uh us being victims was the way that many of us discovered how to become, you know, fully-fledged members of the queer community.
0: Yeah, uh, right. Well, I, I totally, uh, totally can re- relate. Uh, my, my first gay club ever was a bar called Construction Five in Frankfurt, Germany and um when i was in the middle when i first arrived at my uh unit uh in the u.s army in frank in Aschaffenburg, germany which is about 30 minutes 45 minutes south of uh, frankfurt proper um my um i i did what's called fire direction telling missiles where to go uh so i was between fire command you know command and pushing the button And so we took weather data and everything else, terrain and so forth, and did it all, uh, the computations to put the missile from this point to that point. Well, you had to live with your, you had to be, if you were in the barracks, uh, being a single person, not married off base, uh, you lived in the same rooms with the people that you worked with. So you literally were 24 hours a day with these people and the the person that i had which is i could do a whole episode just me talking about this fella named david mckinney he was an african-american person he was a lot like the um the person on mash uh the tv show mash um i forget his name was it Klinger, who constantly was like trying to get out of the military wearing a dress and so forth Well, this guy was, uh, would wear diamond studded cocktail rings. Now, I don't know if they were real or costume jewelry or not, but this guy would wear like cocktail rings in his military uniforms. And it was so funny because the, uh, whenever I first arrived, um, you know, he, of course, because we were in the same, not only the same unit, but the same job, therefore we lived together within the first couple of days, uh, we walked over to the, the, the small, um, uh, kind of food store right on our, our, con- what's called our concern, our, our small compound. Um, and, uh, each city would have multiple compounds. So this one compound had a, a small, you know, food and beverage shop and, you know, snack shop. And I sat and I had a burger and fries. And then about a week or so later, we started talking. Of course, he was flam fricking buoyant. I mean, crazy, crazy flamboyant. And uh, so he just started probing. And then one day he goes, I know you're gay because I saw the way you eat your fries. You eat your fries like you want to, you know. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, yes, eventually I, you know, he kind of pushed me to come out. And, you know, he was kind of like became my mother. <laughs> and he was like, uh, we're going to Frankfurt this weekend. And he, he dressed me. I mean, he put me in, you know, I only had, I had basic clothes. He's like, no, 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 you're not wearing that here. Put this on here, put this on. And, you know, had it not been for him, um, I would have had a much more difficult time because it was, you know, you had to get on a train, go 45 minutes by train, And find it and so forth, and I was totally clueless. So I kind of had there were negativity about having someone so flamboyant live in your same room at the at night in 1986 and 1987 in the U.S. Army, but there were also some benefits. And so I'll have a whole episode eventually, me just chatting about that. So I don't want to take away from you, but but part of that is I I can relate because there were other bars in and around the area uh, uh, called the. Kunststabelwache, which was the, Kunst, the main street uh, in the area, and there were other bars, and I too would kind of sit outside because there was a leather bar, there was, you know, all kinds of different things, and I would more or less kind of assess uh, each one as best as possible, because it was new, and I, I was only 18 years old. Yeah, yeah. So how old were you when you first went to that first bar?
1: I I ran away when I was 17, but one of the strangest things I found about the whole thing was that I quite often ended up sharing rooms with gay men who didn't know... We both pretended we were straight because we were working in bars and restaurants and what have you, straight places. And so quite often there was one particular occasion when I became homeless, where I was sharing a, a, a flat with a guy called Jamie. And it's where I lost my most treasured possession at the moment, which was an original signed copy of a Bette Midler program when Bet Midler was doing the London Palladium in London and I, I I met somebody in the street and I took this guy back to my flat and because my flatmate who I didn't know was gay but was gay but we were both pretending each other was straight came home early and found me in bed with this guy And I was so traumatized by being found out that I was in bed with a gay man, that I literally said to my flatmate, I am going to get some milk. And I walked out of that flat and I never ever walked back. And I I spent six months on the street. I was so Mm. traumatized by being seen in a physical capacity with another male. Oh. I think a lot of people would have experienced similar sort of things. It, it, it wasn't just the matter of of, of being gay and, 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 and the issue of going into a gay bar. It was then coming to terms with the physical contact and then actually coming out to people you knew. Although I was sort of open in, in a sort of weird way when I was 17. I didn't actually accept my sexuality till I was in my 30s and I have friends now in their 50s who so are only now in 2020 coming to terms with their sexuality. It, 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 it's, it's it's extraordinary how we're, we're such open as LGB community but actually the reality is internally we have so much turmoil coming to terms with who we are and and how we express that and how we, even to our family and to our friends, it, it's one thing to be open and out to your friends it's quite something else to your family and I think a right. lot of people have issues with that particularly if you have a family of faith if you have a Jewish family you have a Muslim family there's lots of, 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 of structural problems around it and, 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 and to a certain extent being a runaway I didn't have that family connection so for me to be queer was relatively easy because I didn't have anybody to be accountable to, or anybody I was trying to impress other than myself. But there's a lot of people even now today still have struggles with those issues with the people around them, whether they're married in in a heterosexual relationship, whether they have children, whether they have family, whether people of faith. So I I still think that the, the issues that we had as young men back in the 80s, Still, to a certain extent, even though we think that we've won so much and we have such a broad agenda, we see so much of gay life on TV and on Netflix and everywhere else, the reality is for a lot of people it's still a real struggle to come to terms with who you are and how you live the life that you want. Because you try to live for other people, not necessarily yourself.
0: Right. Absolutely. and. it is like, and maybe, and and I don't know why that is, except to kind of push on and sh- and kind of relate it to other issues. Um, you know, for you know, as, of course, like racism. You want to? We think we've we've accomplished a lot, but then you you really take a deep look and and no, there's still a lot of issues. There's still a lot of bi- uh, unconscious bias, uh, uh, conscious and unconscious biases that that happen. Um, I also relate it, uh, to a lot of times, you know, in, in the workplace, looking at, you know, sexual harassment here in the United States, that's been illegal for 40 years, yet it still happens look at all the education. And so then to your point is, um, and I, it's a very, very valid one is, is look what all the progress we made, but look at, you know, look at, at, at a, at a group level and as an individual level, you know how people are, uh, the struggles that they still have, um, whether that be as a group or even especially on the individual level. I mean, here in the United States, you know, uh, a huge portion of the uh, individuals under 18 years old who are homeless are something like three times more likely to be LGBT.
1: That's the same in the UK.
0: Yes. So, and of course the reason is, is because of the same issues that we've been talking about, you know, that family dynamics, that family, you know, not accepting them uh, for, for who they are and pushing them out, whether that's physically that, or, or that the parent uh, or, or, or a guardian told them, you know, get the, you know, heck out of my house or whether similar to you, just walking out them, them not, them having the, the the perception that the family would would not accept them and they leave on their own trying to avoid that conflict yeah. um yeah. you know both of those are, are valid uh uh points um and you know that's partly I, I will say for for many reasons why i wanted to start these these conversations and having them you know out there is that so you know it it, it hopefully people can listen and and having the professional you know perspective is you know having the different views because one of the and that there could hopefully make changes you know because there's for example i just got uh made aware of a uh a gay male uh person on youtube who within just 12 months has nearly 30,000 subscribers and so forth good for him um you know, but his content is not the kind of content that I would do. And because if I did his kind of content, um, it wouldn't fit with my audience, you know, yeah. but there's a place for that. Uh, just like there's another person on YouTube uh, who does movies and I actually did a, a, an interview with him um, and uh, he does film and so forth. And well, of course he has 70,000 followers already because 80% of the time, the guys in his videos are walking around shirtless. You know, if if we were to be sitting around, well, I don't know with you and I uh, at our age, you know, <laughs> but
1: you know, I don't know, the older men are still cute, I tell you. They're, yeah, they're, but you I know, still but, pal- pal- my husband, you know, and you know, his, right. He, he's right, you know, like 40 plus.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly but you know if we if i said oh well i'm i'm going to do a series of interviews and one of the require, it's going to be targeting the male um you know because of course you got to be sensitive to the female but you know hey if i could get a lot of a lot of subscribers and get my message out if i were to say all right all of my i and my interviewees are always going to be shirtless and straps, yeah. right i'll get a lot of subscribers yeah. but but then that would not be accepting to a huge portion of the rest of the audience. And so
1: the the secret though, I think the secret people forget is that, you know, you look at Lady Gaga, you look at Madonna, they're not trying to be anybody else. They are who they are. And I think too many people try to be, to emulate somebody, Else rather than be themselves. And I think it's a big thing that, that falls within our community. I, I, I sort of very late in stage discovered that on social media, I'd rather have 500 people that follow me on Twitter that engage and share and buy my books and, and engage with my activism than 200,000 that just peer through my, you know, scroll down their Twitter page every day. Oh yeah, yeah, this is what Ray's doing like some peeping Tom. than than just have the figures. And I think too many people focus the wrong way around. A lot of advertising now is is reversing from people that have got two or 300,000 followers to people that have three to 5,000 followers because they find that those with a smaller following generally have a more proactive following base. And and, and I find, for example, on my Twitter account, that I I probably have, percentage-wise, a greater engagement level than some of my friends that have 200,000 followers. And the mm. same with LinkedIn. I mean, LinkedIn, I find opens up the whole world i mean we we've become friends through linkedin i think LinkedIn's, linkedin is extraordinary because of the range of people you meet on a different level to you meet on facebook or or or, or, or twitter and you know i'm now my follower i i deal with you know heads like you do with leaders in the united nations members of governments around the world leaders of great organizations Uh, prime ministers, members of parliament around the world, all sorts of people I wouldn't have access through via any other social media but thanks to LinkedIn we together are having this, this conversation now, people are listening in they're discovering my work, they're discovering your work and it shows you that it's not about the numbers it's the quality of the content and I think we are now redefining through social media What we value what we enjoy our time is precious and therefore what we listen to and what we engage with needs to be a bit more substantial than you know a topless, you know cute guy and uh, You know what what top you're gonna wear on a Saturday night. I think we've gone beyond that and I think people of all ages need something more substantial to actually sit and enjoy that and to challenge them and to, to, to also remember and, and to engage with what's it like, you know, how did we get where we are and and, and even telling our stories about the 70s and 80s. It's like what people are having to do with now in Hungary and Belarus and Poland and it, it makes it relevant in a way that people can understand. But they don't when they see the TV and it's all very lovely, we're marching through the streets, happy pride, you know, singing glad to be gay. When the reality is for a lot of people it's not that simple. And so our stories and our conversations have to be substantial, and they have to be accurate, and they have to be true, and they have to be a bit more substantial than superficial, so that people come back and want more information, they want to know more about what we do as adults and what 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 we've learned. And and to really sort of you know feed off us really to some extent as to Examples in their own life because we are all the same we may be white males talking today But the experiences we have are the same whether you're you're Jew you're black you're Muslim You're you're Christian you're atheist. We all experience homophobia. We all experience hate We all experience disadvantage of social injustice and that's really what unites us all so I think that yes, we're on out borough and we're sort of a gay, you know, two gay men talking together, but our story resonates way beyond the gay community.
0: I I absolutely agree. Um uh, I, I do. And I really like your point uh to kind of reiterate is like, you know, even though getting back to all the advances that we've made yet, there's still so much work even in our you know, societies of the U S and the UK. There's also other countries where, um, it, it, you know, like a a hot post right now is what's going on in Poland, uh, within the LinkedIn group. And so there's lessons to be learned. And just like some of the issues that, that you have helped and dealt with in your past, uh, there in the UK, um, People in Poland and other areas of the world—they're just, perhaps, even thinking about dealing with those kinds of issues. So, so let's go back a little bit and talk about the the housing side of house, uh, the house, the side, the housing side of the house. So that's the housing side of the conversation. And uh, chat with us a little bit about what you did there.
1: Right. I mean, the housing was sort of quite extraordinary because I. When I was a gay man I came to London and I, I, I sort of struggled to sort of get work and I, like I said I was living on the street. And then I found this squat that I was living in, in in southeast London, a place called Brixton. And it was full of, you know, in those days everybody was called transvestites, you know, we didn't have trans and, and all the, the agenda that we have now. And it was full of all sorts of different people and we all lived in this house and we were all queer together. And then, every Friday night, um, yobs would come around in cars and haul uh, petrol bombs and bricks literally through our windows every weekend. Oh my God! And, uh, you know, write queer all over our building. And uh, it was really aggressive and really, really violent. We refused to allow it to happen. We were living in an area which was seen very much as a ghetto, it sort of a black ghetto where we were living. There was this queer household in the middle of it. And what we would do every, every Saturday, they would come around Friday night and throw bricks. And every Saturday morning, all the guys would get on their best drag and we'd get, we had a sound blaster with uh, the Supremes and Dinah Ross. And we would march down Deptford, uh, Brixton High Street onto the Tube in full drag, all dressed as the Supremes, playing out the Supreme song. And then when we got fed up with them writing queer all over our house, we changed the logo, so we wrote queer, like we left the big word queer, we coloured it in pink, and then we added underneath it and proud, queer and proud. And so we turned the gravity of hate into something positive and something of strength and power. And so from that, that's sort of really sort of where, you know, being a homeless man, I got into the housing thing and got into the housing movement, and then living in this sort of powerful squat, which was you know very, very active but I was you know, still I was 17, 18. And then when the AIDS came along, again, I was homeless, but I, I just thought we need to do something for, for, for gay people. And I was losing so many of my friends and nobody could house anybody because back in the 70s and 80s, to share with another gay man, it was actually very difficult. You couldn't get a tenancy agreement. There wasn't even gay holidays back in the 70s and 80s. And so it was quite a struggle, but, the housing sort of haunted me, and, and, and I, 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 I won Pink Paper, uh, Gay Business of the Year, I was Finest London Businessman of the Year, London Chamber of Commerce, the only property professional that's ever won such a high prestigious award, and um, that really sort of opened doors in housing, you know, changing policy, uh, I worked as a government advisor for the government and for different political parties, writing on housing policy. I worked on gay marriage in, in, in Tory government. And, uh, and that sort of really got me into the, the policy agenda, realizing through housing and, and, and policy, it wasn't necessarily politics that made a difference, but, but, but uh, housing. And then I moved to the area where I live in Southeast London, and one day we were looking for somewhere to live and I noticed that my local council was selling off really decent housing, which we needed for people in housing need, at auction, which means that they're sold, at you know, next to nothing. And so I got involved with this movement called People Before Profit, which is now a political movement. It's quite small in the UK. In in the 2000s, 90s, it was, it was much bigger and it's now has power in Ireland north and south but it was built on a housing movement and what we did was we went into all these buildings and we occupied them the night of the auction and we filled them with families who are waiting on the council's own waiting list and by occupying those houses we changed the council's housing policy so none of those houses could be sold because they were now all occupied and the council couldn't really kick all these people out because it was their own homeless people that were in these housing. And so we mm. suddenly realised through this housing movement that when you take some sort of direct action and work on policy, you can really make direct action. And then we, we progressed that. So we we then said that there's too much land around London, which is sitting empty. We need to do something with it. So we occupied... Uh, a piece of land and we built an eco house on it in 24 hours and moved a homeless people into it and the point was that a lot of land sits empty in order to uh, uh, stimulate the value of property if you built all the houses that you could and have planning permission to build it'd bring prices down which would make them houses less profitable to build and Mm. so our, our, our argument was that if you if we can build a house as activists in 24 hours, the state can build houses in a few weeks with decent toilets and decent kitchens. And so we built it and the council came around, you know, the next day and bulldozed it because they were so embarrassed by it, by which time we'd got media coverage for it. And then we went to the actual town hall in Lewisham in southeast London, and we built an eco house, literally on the lawn in front of our town hall, our state, control uh, uh, centre. And we wow. occupied for three weeks until we changed housing policy. So really that sort of got me into, you know, from the age where I've been sort of, you know, campaigning for, you know, gay uh, equality in housing and housing law and, 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 and against homophobia, I then got into housing, which of course, as we just said earlier on, that, that a quarter of all gay people around the world uh, make up the housing problems so you know whether it's America or it's the UK whether it's France or even Greece at the moment you find that a quarter of, of, of the homeless population are generally LGBT uh, even in 2020 and so that's sort of really some progressed things so sort of the housing thing went from the gay to the, to the housing and then I got involved obviously with, with, with food poverty and, 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 and the issues around uh, access to, to, to food, access to housing for everybody and that really sort of took me on to, to other levels where I run for political office and uh, I wasn't expected to win when I stood for, for public office it was quite an extraordinary story I was on a bus and I overheard two people talking about a by-election this is an election when a, a councillor has died or somebody stood down and they're having a, a temporary election to fill that vacancy And so they were talking about this seat that was the Labour seat at the time in in London, but they didn't have to do any work because it had been Labour for 100 years and it wasn't going to change. Mm. And I was so incensed that they would taken people's votes for granted that I went to this area and I got selected as the candidate for this by-election in a really die-hard safe in Brixton. And this is Brixton during the, the Brixton riots, before the Brixton riots. And I, I, I was knocking on doors and everybody said to me, you can't win here, it's been, you know, labour for 100 years, you can't win, you can't win. And I knocked day and night in every door. And then I came across a young couple, sorry, an elderly uh, black Windrush couple from Jamaica. And they were living in a tiny flat where the water had been leaking for years and it caused stalactites on their ceilings. And they were sleeping on the kitchen table, so they had a little ladder They lifted up the mattress, put it on the kitchen table, and that's how they've been sleeping for four years. Wow. So I was so shocked by it. I said, look, I'm going to do something about that. So I I rung up the radio and the TV, and within 24 hours, the TV were doing live broadcasts about how people were living in slum conditions in London. And they were rehoused within 48 hours. And even to this day, they call me Moses in Brixton because of getting them out. It got me elected. I won a famous by-election, which led to me because I was a gay politician. I was out at the time. I was one of the few uh, publicly known gay politicians in Britain. I was targeted by a group called Combat 18, which is far right extreme group, which which wanted to uh, have me killed. And I got involved in, in other things. I, I, at the time we had these things called beef and butter mountains in Europe. We had this crazy enough, where we were producing more food than we could actually get rid of. So wow. I had an area which was very poor, and Europe had these warehouses full of meat and butter and sugar. And so what, the first day I was elected, I wrote to the, the minister in the EU, in the, in the common market, and said, hey, why have you got all this food in warehouses when I've got people starving in Brixton in southeast London? And they said, well, how many people? I got a letter back two weeks later, and they said, how many people do you have? And I said, oh, about 17 and a half thousand people. So they said, can you take food if we send it to you? I said, yes. And two weeks later, 17 and a half tons of meat, butter and sugar came from Europe to my little ward but I represented it in Brixton. Wow. And that was when all hell broke loose. There was a House of Commons debate. What was Ray Wolford doing with all this beef from the common market? Was he not bribing his votes, winning his votes by giving everybody all this food? And there was an independent inquiry by the fisheries farming department at the time who said, no, Ray was an exceptional councillor, councillor had gone to extreme measures to do what was right for the people he served. And out of that, because of the profile, it led to me, you know, my profile going through the roof, which led to me one day at, you know, 20 past 12, my, my flat became so dangerous, I was living in a tower block at the time, but my neighbour had an elderly neighbour that was in her 90s and she was more scared than me, and they would like break into my flat, they would pee through my letterbox, they would write Nazi uh, uh, slogans all over my, my flat, walls after they'd let themselves in with shit, literally. And um, it became so dangerous, the council put me into Protective Custody. I had to move. And on the day they were moving me to another flat, um, a car followed me up. This is like 20 plus 12, midday, and a car had obviously been tipped off about me going to the housing office to get a key. I was a social council tenant at that time. And uh, a car pulled up, two guys got out with guns. and said, are you Ray Walford? And I said, yes. And they said then you're a queer dead FFF and started shooting me and it was so surreal because at the time I had a huge phone we didn't have little phones and I had a, 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 huge, a big alarm to ring the police you know to, alarm button to get police because I was under police protection at this point and I managed to switch the alarm on and get police and the police followed me and they were shoot, uh, chasing me and shooting me down the road and People at each side of the road were watching because it was so surreal, they thought they were filming a detective series or something. You know, it was just like, it it, it wasn't real. And then as I heard the police car coming towards me, because it wasn't too far away, I turned around and a bullet just hit my chin, just grazed my chin. So I got that close to being killed. And we managed to hunt these people down. They were actually caught. This is how crazy the legal system was in Britain at that time, was it was so dangerous for me, I couldn't run for political office. So I lost my seat. I couldn't run again for political office from the seat that I loved. And the guy who shot me pleaded guilty. And because there was no crime, shooting gay people was quite acceptable in British law in those times. He got 18 months for assault instead of attempted murder. Because you couldn't kill a gay person in the 1980s and 1990s, so it was quite an extraordinary sort of experience. Uh, So, you know, I managed to change things through policy and 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 do some strange things. We didn't have social media like we have it now, but uh, but of course that really sort of showed me that you have to stand for what you believe in and do what you believe is right, even when there's risk and um you know i'm proud what i did i'm a proud what i've achieved you know i've done it against the odds i'm not a man with exams i'm not you know articulate i'm, I'm dyslexic you know i come from a single mom you know i came through the child care system and uh, i just think that so you know there's so many people out there that think there's no opportunities for me and it's like you've got to try and live the life that you want as an individual and be true to yourself even it's really tough sometimes and really hard and very lonely and it can undermine your mental health but I think the one thing I've done I've done so many amazing things and people said you can't do this you can't do that and in the next part of the the, the, the interview we're talking about is my work with civil rights and some of the stuff I've done there which is quite extraordinary but um the the thing that I you know I get across to everybody is that I've always lived an extraordinary life I've had an amazing life and I've always been humbled because the people that have always helped me in my life have been the people that have always been the sickest, the poorest, the people most disenfranchised. They have been all. So when I made it successful in business, when I became a successful businessman, and when I was, you know, running nightclubs and 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 working with Chris Reeves Superman, and all these amazing people, and I had a, a number one album, and I had, uh, you know, dance groups and you know, top 10 chart hits with the groups I was managing and running successful clubs. I never forgot the people that helped me at the bottom. And today, now fortunate, for the grace of God go I, I now I have a husband I adore, I have a home I love, I have a friends that I adore. And out of the blue, after 57 years, I'm now in contact with my mother, who I'd not seen for 57 years. Wow! And so some strange things happen in life. And I think the whole thing about my life has always been about being true, however tough it's been. It's been terribly tough. I've had terrible times. You know, my, my last partner died. Uh, he was married. His wife tried to get me out of the house. Uh, I was banned from his hospital bedside because as a gay man, I had no rights to be at his bedside, even though we have been living together for five years. And so now when I marry it, married my 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 present husband in a civil partnership I didn't do it because I wanted to be part of the system I did it because I wanted to protect him and I remember the struggles and the trials and tribulations I had in order to get that right to protect my husband in love and through a civil partnership so you know I, I hope that that helps other people that are listening in Yeah,
0: well, absolutely. And, you know, there, there is so much, I mean, we haven't even, even began to tickle uh, several of the things that you have done, uh, just kind of briefly glazed over. Um, And so, you know, at any point uh, that, uh, you know, you'd like to maybe delve into those uh, other areas. Um, would would love to have you share your stories with that, um, but uh, we're I know uh, you have another uh, appointment to get to here shortly, so wanted to kind of wrap things up here and say uh, make sure folks. Uh, We've we've chatted about a lot. Uh, I'm going to have show notes uh, down in the bottom uh, with links to um, uh, some of the content uh, for Ray. So uh, please make sure that you check those out. Also connect with him on outbureau.com and uh, begin to uh, so not only create your profile on outbureau.com, but also reach out to Ray and connect. Um, where we're striving to bring you the ability to connect, thrive, and engage uh, beyond any other social media platform, being a LGBT professional and entrepreneurial focused. Uh, So, Ray, we we have chatted about a lot. I I hope that people will see kind of the depth and, and breadth that that you have. Uh, So uh, if uh, we are going to be doing another episode with, with Ray, so uh, please be sure to up right up here, uh, clink uh, lick. Uh, link up to that here in just a a moment uh, if it doesn't come automatically up here in in your next uh, episode. If you are listening to this on one of the uh, audio apps, um, make sure you do. I don't know if this will be out immediately after, but uh, be sure to uh, look up Ray uh, on our uh, forthcoming episodes. Again, you can listen to this if you don't have time to see all of the... uh, I love communicating. I love sharing and chatting in person, which is why I love to do these videos because you're able to see facial expressions and get a sense of the person. However, if you are on the go or wanting to listen to this to and from your commute to work, or while you are perhaps doing some cardio at the gym, uh, you can also listen to this on 14 different audio uh, applications, including the popular uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and so many others. Uh, We appreciate you tuning in and, Ray, I thank you so much for your time in this episode and look forward to our conversation coming up in the next.
1: Great. Thank you. It's been a delight as always.
0: All righty. Well, thank you. This is Dennis Falco with OutBureau. Join us on OutBureau.com. That is outbur is Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: <laughs>